You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'm so glad you're here. This episode is quite, quite timely. We get into some things about the whole potential tube shortage, which was actually sort of accidental. I just wanted to talk to Andy about himself, and we couldn't help but dive into the current events a little bit, as it does directly affect amp makers especially. But I want to give a huge thanks to Andy for coming on the show. He was super nice, and I really enjoyed talking with him. And a huge shout out to Scott from SNK Pedals, who's been on the show before. He works with Andy and was the reason this show happened, so huge shout out. And let me tell you, this is one of the most revealing Patreon episodes ever. So if you are a patron of the podcast, you are in for such a treat. Seriously, this one is... (laughs) It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. There's some dumble tales. There's all kinds of things going on on that one. So if you would like to support the show... Now would be a great time to do so because this episode is tremendous. And there are so many back episodes at this point. You will have hours and hours and hours and hours of content to absorb, to enjoy. And best of all, it helps keep this thing on the rails. Huge shout out to the patrons. Thank you so much for keeping this thing going. And huge shout out to anyone that's using the ToneMob.com slash Sweetwater or ToneMob.com slash ReverbLinks. Those help out tremendously as well. Okay, that's enough plugging. Let's get into this episode with Mr. Andy Fuchs. This one is a banger. Let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Weiland, and with me today, I have Andy Fuchs from Fuchs Audio. What's going on, dude? Nothing much. It's a 29-degree snowy day in New Jersey. Oh, that's, the, that's intense. That's got intense. the heat cranking in the shop. We were, we're open on Saturdays because we have, besides the manufacturing business, we have a very busy service business. Uh, we do a lot of repair work for a number of backline companies in the New York, New Jersey area. And we also service a lot of equipment for musicians, uh, professionals, and people that think they are. Uh, from the local uh, from the local music community. And uh, so we've got a lot of people. I get a lot of people from Manhattan. We're about a 20 minutes, a half an hour from Manhattan that during the week they can't get here, you know, obviously because of work or, uh, and here's something you don't get in too many parts of the country. I have to borrow a car to get to you. Right. So that's pretty funny. <laughs> but, uh, so we're good. I mean, we're getting, you know, uh, a decent amount of repair work, which is great. And it also gives people an opportunity to check our stuff out because we have a showroom that you, unfortunately, you have to walk through it to get to the service area. So that's kind of a, a little subliminal. Hey, can I play that? Sure you can. <laughs> so, uh, so that's kind of cool. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I uh, I totally understand the no car thing. You know, having been to New York a few times now, like 
I used to think, what do you, no car? What do you mean you know car? I don't, I don't understand. That does not compute. And I, now that I've been there and, and I love, I love New York City, I totally get it. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't have a car if I lived here either. I totally understand. Oh, my, my son moved from New Jersey to downtown Brooklyn. He's got a lovely apartment and he gave up his car. And he's like, you know what? Between the insurance, finding a place to park it, now the cost of gas is going crazy. Mm-hmm. And you develop the skill set of, you know, managing mass transit. And I still get customers coming out here that are like, I took the train to the Clifton station and then I took an Uber to your shop. And I'm like, wow, that's dedication, which is kind of <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I think it's probably not super common that uh, a listener of this podcast has not at least heard of your company in passing at some point in their journey. Uh, if they're if they're a listener of this show, it's hard for me to imagine. But in the rare event that they may not be familiar with you and your company, maybe we can go way back in the archives and talk about, you know, how you got started doing what you're doing, how you started making amps, you know, and what got you to the, the point where you are so busy. Well, what's kind of, uh, kind of cool is I had a, a, a very encouraging uh, set of parents, um, you know, in part, I, I overheard my father, you know, discussing, my hobby of electronics and stuff. And, and I heard him tell a friend, it keeps him off the streets. I know where he is and I know what he's doing. Um, so in part, I think my parents were trying to not only encourage and, and get me a skill I could use, but to keep me out of trouble. And I didn't grow up in a bad area, but you know, kids will find trouble to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to preface that, I was the kid who would find the broken record player or the broken TV in somebody's garbage on my way home from school, you know, I would walk uh, probably three quarters or a mile back and forth to elementary and middle school and high school. They were all walking distance for someone in their youth. And, um, you know, every now and then I'd run to a payphone and call my mother and say, Ma, I'm on the corner of, you know, X Street and Y Street. And somebody's throwing something away that's too big for me to bring home. Can you come over with the car and we'll take it home? So I started to, to play around with this stuff. And my father had been in the Signal Corps in the Army. He was in the Korean War. And he understood the dangers of messing around with high voltage. And pretty much at that point, everything was tubes. Mm-hmm. So he had a buddy up the block who ran the local TV store. Um, And, you know, in the sixth grade, I was working in my dad's store. I'd sweep the floor and answer the phone. I'd make appointments. He had a small family music store that sold instruments and did teaching. And he did repair work to band instruments. And I thought I had a job. And one day my father says, hey, I got you a job. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, go up the block to the TV store, see my friend Al, and Al's going to give you a job. And what ended up happening was every day, after work and Saturdays, um, I would go to the TV store. I would sweep floors. I would take inventory of tubes and uh, answer the phone and make repair appointments. Um, And I watched him work. And I found that very fascinating. And I had a couple of broken guitar amps and stereo pieces in the basement that I'd found in the garbage and brought home. And he said, well, why don't you bring them in and we'll, we'll fix them together and I'll teach you how this goes. And I was 12 years old at the time, what are you in the sixth grade, about 12, 13. Mm-hmm. And um, my parents bought me, you know, my own meter and my own scope and my own signal generator and set me up on a workbench in the basement that used to be like, you know, an old dining room table. And I got a soldering iron, um, you know, and it, it evolved from there. And I, I got milk crates full of books from Al. Here's U.S. Army electronic manuals that taught me Ohm's law and gain and how tubes worked and, you know, wiring practices and grounding. And, you know, and he basically said to me, listen, if you're going to do this, you should do it correctly. And additionally, the potential is there to kill yourself. Right. Um, If you're not careful, literally you can be killed. Mm -hmm. Um, So having a good foundation was important. And I took off a summer um, after high school and before I started what was supposed to be college, I thought I'd take a year off. I was playing in bands. 
I was lucky. I was working for a guy who was booking music on cruise ships. So I'd go away for a week or two and get paid and get laid and get drunk and make music. Um, <laughs> and when I came back, I, I decided to go to a technical school um, because I discovered you couldn't go to college and learn tubes anymore. You know, this would have been 75, 76. And although you could buy them and use them and fix things with them, you couldn't really go to engineering college without being taught computers and, you know, solid state. Now, in hindsight, with what happened with the Internet and, and stocks and everything on, you know, for the Web and the whole computer business in general, you know, maybe I could have made more money and been more successful in computers. I don't know. <laughs> but when I went to RCA Institutes in Manhattan and I got, you know, I took courses in what was called ET, which is electronic technology. Um, and I learned diagnostics and signal tracing. And it was in addition to what I'd already learned. And while going to school, the, the school used to be in the shadow of Madison Square Garden in the 30s on the west side. I started a part-time job working for a store called We Buy Guitars on 48th, which was run by Richie Friedman, who today I think still runs a store called We Buy Guitars. Um, and it was a family-run business that used to buy and sell uh, guitars and basses and amps and things. And I was wiring guitars and fixing amps in the store. A lot of famous people came and went. Um, you know, and to give you perspective, that was at a time where you could probably buy a 1959 Les Paul for about 500 bucks. They were hanging in the window, wow. bumping, off, bumping off of Ibanez's and Gretsch's and whatever else. And people didn't want them. You know, had I known then what I know now, you know, I might have socked a couple away. Yeah, yeah. But it was baptism by fire because, you know, somebody would come strolling in, whether it was Gene Simmons or David Bromberg or whoever, and it was like, I need this fixed. I got a gig tonight. Oh, great. And we used to work behind a big plexiglass wall. There was a counter, you know, where they dealt with customers and the repair people, we were kind of like, it was like going to the petting zoo. And it's a guitar guy and an amp guy and another guitar guy. And we were behind plexiglass and people watched us work. So, you know, here I am trying not to kill myself and trying to figure out how to fix things that I was still a little green with. But over the time, um, I started to really get good at it. I just hadn't had an affinity for it. Um, and that evolved into doing modifications. And, you know, one of my first modifications was taking like a Fender Bassman and taking that first channel that nobody uses and connecting it to the second channel inside. And I had overdrive, you mm -hmm. know, and years later, um, you know, I became friendly with Dennis Kager um, through my father. My father knew Jess Oliver from Ampeg and Jess introduced me to Dennis. And years later, you know, we were talking about circuits and I, I told him how proud I was of, of basically making what sort of Randall Smith and Howard Dumble did. And he laughed and he goes, you think you're the only guy who ever did that? And I said, <laughs> well, apparently not, you know, um, but it evolved from that, you know, uh, a curiosity and having the advantage of being a player and being able to make things for myself. And additionally, in later years, I was playing in the local like wedding business, doing dinner dances and weddings. And I would bring like a guitar amp prototype and I'll play bass and I'll, I'll, I got friendly with all the guitar players in the office that I worked for. And it's like, Hey, Matt, plug this thing in and, and use it. If it doesn't work out, you know, you can go back to your hot rod DeVille or whatever you're playing, but, but try my amp and let me know what you think. Um, so I got a lot of proactivity and feedback from, you know, musician friends and it, it kind of helped shape what I was building. Now, as an aside, I had seen a Dumble amp on 48th Street, um, and it came in, you know, with a bad tube or whatever. It was nothing crazy. Um, and it was one of the models that wasn't gooped. Mm -hmm. So I, I took some notes, and I converted um, a, a good buddy of mine gave me a Bandmaster head um, just to muck around with. I think it was in return for fixing a guitar or painting a guitar. I forget. So my buddy Augie gives me a Bandmaster head and I gut it and, and I, I clone a Dumble. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, I, and I've said this on the internet and everything. It's no secret. It was a starting point. Um, 
And uh, it came out nice. It sounded, it was a good sounding amp. It did certain things really well. And uh, again, I was a big fan of Larry Carlton and Robin Ford and Santana and guys that used them. But to me, it was sort of a work in progress in that as a guitar player, I like reverb. Um, I like having an effects loop. I like more foot switchability. Um, I always felt like Dumble sort of got to a point in his evolution where he just kept refining the amp internally, but he never evolved any further. Um, when I came out with my triple drive, it was a three-channel version. You had a clean, a crunch, and a lead channel, and that was sort of an evolutionary thing. Mm -hmm. um, what we currently make now in the ODS-2 is essentially a clean preamp and a dirt preamp that share a power amp and a couple of effects loops. And, you know, players are like, it's great not to have to share tone controls between channels. Right. So, you know, we started out at that point um, where I looked at it, for example, Dumble had a FET boost. And that was more for, back in the day, acoustic transducers used to stick them on the front of your guitar. Mm -hmm. Marcus Berry used to make them. And, and Howard took the Barcus Berry preamp verbatim and plastered it inside of his amp and gave you a separate input jack to use for your acoustic guitar. Well, guys like Ry Cooter and I think Sonny Landreth were using that input because it juiced up the amp. It gave it more gain. Um, I liked the idea of it. However, he used a now obsolete transistor you can't really get anymore. Um, it was a little noisy, and it wasn't ideally made to be connected to an electric guitar. It was made to be connected to a transducer. So, you know, somebody will say, oh, you have a FET boost just like he does. Well, I have a FET boost, but it's not his FET boost. It's mine. Mm -hmm. um, I designed it in conjunction with a friend of mine named Nelson Pass, who's a very well-respected audio engineer. He's designed studio equipment, and he designs chips for, I think it's Texas Instruments. He makes his own line of high-end audio equipment. And coincidentally, his son's a guitar player. So I, I reached out to Nelson and I said, hey, I need to make this FET boost. I need like 20 dB of gain. I need it to be super quiet. I need to be made out of transistors I can buy. Mm -hmm. And like the next day, he emails me a circuit. I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. So I, I build it and wasn't happy with it. And I told him what was wrong with it. And he said, oh, I kind of suspected that. Let me tweak it. So he sends me back another circuit. And I was like, now you got it. Um, it sounded like tubes. It was quiet. Had terrific dynamic range. You couldn't overload it with a guitar. It was very transparent. It was there, but you didn't know it was there. Um, so we ended up using that in, in our amps. We used it in a couple of our pedals. Um, and he said, I said, what do I owe you? And he said, send me a bunch of pedals for my kid. So, you know, not only did we become friends, his kid got some pedals and I got a circuit I could use, you know. Yeah. Um, but but our stuff sort of evolved. And, you know, listen, there's enough guys out there building, you know, letter perfect clones of 59 less balls and Dumble Overdrive specials um, and steel string stinkers and all of that stuff. Um, I kind of chose to be influenced by or maybe make a homage or advance the technology a little bit beyond you know the guys that they the so-called cloners mm -hmm. um you know we we had a full line of pedals we've dialed it back a little bit because the pedal business has just become insanely competitive you know and and really the demand for our amplifiers you know when i could have a guy build a gain boost that sells to a customer for 150 dollars or have them build an amp that sells for 2000 what would you do? Right. So we dialed back the pedals. We build them to order. We build a limited amount of them, but we focus basically on the amps. Um, we've grown in 20 years of doing this because I had a real job for a while. I mean, I did the 48th Street thing, and then I had my own repair shop for a while. Um, then I got married, and my ex-wife said, you know, be nice if you made more money. <laughs> so I went out and got a real job. I worked in the uh, security and fire alarm commercial end of the business, selling camera systems, fire alarms, uh, school intercoms, clock systems, 
and I made good money. I mean, I, I was a, a commissioned salesperson. I had a good 10, 12 year run in the industry, put some money away for retirement, bought a house, put two kids through college. Um, and then I started doing the amp thing when I finally had a house. I set up a workbench in the basement and started building stuff for myself and doing repair work. People, the word got out, hey, Andy's back to doing this. I had a pretty good reputation. My pop got sick uh, around 99. Um, my father started to walk poorly. Um, they couldn't figure out what it was. It took over a year to figure out that my father had ALS. Um, and that was kind of a turning point for me in that I realized I wanted to work at something that made me happier than just being a cog in the corporate machine. Um, you know, so I started the business as a part-time business and I started to sort of face burnout and I reached a point where the business had a decent amount of money in the bank. Um, I had a decent backlog of amps that people had sent me deposits on to build. I was not at the time selling to dealers. It was primarily direct sales through the gear page. And, you know, the internet started to come on board around that time. My ex-brother-in-law was an internet geek. And he said, you should get a website. It's like a 24-hour storefront. I'm like, okay. And the next thing I know, you know, some guy in England wants to PayPal me money and build him an amp. And I was like, wow. Um, and it became sort of a crossroads for me. I was very lucky in the last year or two of my real employment that I had a boss who said to me, listen, as long as you make quota and you sell enough product that, you know, corporate doesn't breathe down my neck, I won't breathe down yours. You want to sit home and build guitar amps? I don't really give a shit. Um, as long as you you fulfill the responsibilities to the job you've been hired to do. Mm -hmm. um, and it was cool because like my cell phone would ring at like nine in the morning and, and Casey would go, build any amps today? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> well, no. You know, I got actually, I'm going to go out and see some customers. Oh, that's good. Um, so... So it, it was a good year or so that I had sort of an overlap. I still had a paycheck coming in. I still had health insurance for my family. And I was starting this cool business. Um, it reached a point that I actually hired someone to work for me. Uh, rest in peace, Joni. She was a housewife. She answered an ad on Craigslist because it's not all about hookups. And she came over to the house and met my kids and met my wife and, uh, I said, look, you're going to answer the phone. You know, you're going to wire and solder circuit boards. And, you know, you're going to, the UPS guy's going to knock on the door and give you packages and we're going to send stuff out. And she would run the business when I was still going to my day job. We hired another friend of hers. Now, this is two people in the boiler room of my house, which might have been, I don't know, 30 by six feet. 10 feet, maybe. I don't know. It was, it was a small little space. We were working elbow to elbow. Um, and we reached the conclusion. I'll never forget. It was around Easter one year. My wife says, we're going to have company over for Easter. And the living room is full of boxes of amps that have to be shipped out. And <laughs> we really need to get this business out of the house. So I found a space in Bloomfield uh, in where we were living at the time, a 1200 foot factory space, 1200 square feet, which we moved into and we outgrew it in six months. And I finally reached a point of enough burnout and enough confidence that I said, I came home one day from work. I said, I quit. Mm -hmm. What? I quit. Why? Well, I had changed jobs. I left the corporate job for a different corporate job. And I was a I was a, a fish in a big pond at the, at the first job. The second job, not so much. Much smaller company. I was sort of under a microscope. And I said, I just can't do this anymore. And I was going up to see my father a couple of times a week, about an hour away from where I live. And it really kind of changed the way I was thinking. Um, I just said, you know, I'm not going to reach a point where, God forbid, I wake up one morning and, and they tell me I got a year to live or whatever. And it didn't accomplish something that I really wanted to do. There was passion in the music thing. You know, I had gotten a patent in the fire alarm business. I had designed a smoke detector mounting system that I actually got a patent on, which was a life goal. 
you know, I knew Les Paul and I knew some kind of cool people, Vinnie Bell. I was always, um, I always admired people that came up with an idea that was good enough to patent. So I did that. I accomplished that, um, which was cool. But I, I just reached a point where I was like burning, you know, the candle at four ends. Mm-hmm. So I started to do the, uh, the guitar amps full time. I guess it was early 2000s, 2000. Yeah, 2000, 2001. Um, and after six months, we outgrew the space in Bloomfield. And now I'm in the Clifton space, which is 5,000 square feet. Uh, we have a parking lot that's off the street. Um, I'm in a factory building that's 20,000 square feet. I take up a quarter of the building. And in that, we do repairs. Uh, we do R&D. We do QC. Um, and we pretty much everything is in one place because I, I reached a point when the business was in the house that I had like three storage units that I was renting, you know, storage <laughs> unit. Number one was chassis storage. Number two was cabinets. Storage. Number three was transformers. It was, it was crazy. I would go there with my, my sable station wagon and put the seats down and load it up. And the car would be like this that <laughs> I'd bring over to the factory space. Um, and it's good to have everything in one place. We have a freight lift that we use. Um, you know, we'll get a pallet. Last week, we got 200 pounds of cabinets from North Carolina. Um, and they come in on a freight lift and it's like a pleasure. You unpack the pallet and start putting amps in them and out they go. Mm-hmm. Um, so where we're at now is we got about a half a dozen employees. I've got a full-time sales guy. I've got a part-time administrative assistant who does the bank reconciliations in the books. Uh, myself and three other guys in the shop. One guy's a dedicated repair tech. Um, two guys are builders, one of which is a supervisor for the two of them. Um, and that's kind of where we're at at this point. Um, we're making three or four series of amps. We're doing the casino line, which is our affordable line. That's, that starts out a little bit less than 2000. Um, we do the ODS, uh, classic line, which is a little bit less than, uh, 3000. And then we do the ODS twos, which start out at around 4,000. Um, and they all have kind of the signature tone that we've been known for. Um, And it's a good balance, in my opinion, of articulation, but with sweetness. Um, You know, like if maybe Mesa Boogie and Marshall had a baby, you know, you could get the articulation and the clarity, but you could also get enough smoothness that you got sort of the harmonic structure of the guitar, you know. And, And I play... Um, you know, consistently I'm out at least once a week, I'm gigging with a local band and I have a a whole lot of fun doing that. Um, I go some of the open mics and blues jams in the New York, New Jersey area. Um, and you know, people don't say to me, Oh, that's a good dumble sound. They'll say to me, that's a great sound in amp. Um, and it's not a matter of saying it sounds like a given amp or a given performer. I wouldn't profess to be Robin Ford or Larry Carlton or Carlos Santana, but I could get a tone that was pretty close to what they were doing if I could play like them. You right. know? <laughs> so, you know, I still, I still feel strongly that it's very helpful, I know, to me to be a player. Um, you know, I own a lot of fancy test equipment and distortion analyzers and, you know, all kinds of computer like software to monitor and, and record frequency response and stuff. And I use them so infrequently because my most important tools are either a Les Paul or a Strat and my ears, Mm -hmm. you know, because all the measuring in the world isn't going to tell you how good or bad an amp really is. What it comes down to is when you plug a guitar in, does it speak to you? Does it, does, is it the tool you need it to be? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we make a series called the Manus series, which is more in the Marshall camp. Um, it's got two channels, one of which is very much like an 800, one of which is like a 900. It sort of competes against like the Friedman Runt or anything in that realm. Um, the casinos, the ODSs and the ODS twos have that more dumbly vibe to them. And they're all capable of a similar sound. Um, however, the farther up you go in the line, you, you expand the flexibility of the platform. Right. Um, any of the amps above in the lineup can do any of the amps below. Um, and the lower end amps can get fairly close, but you got to twiddle them a little more to do that. And as you move up in the lineup, you can get that a little bit more easily. And you know, it's a little more flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, 
We still build a limited production jazz amp. We call it the Jazz Classic. It's a hybrid. Uh, the late Vic Juris loved his. Dave Stryker, who's opening up this summer for Steely Dan. Uh, Dave is using one as well. It uses a Neo speaker. It's like 26 pounds. It weighs less than a Blues Junior. It's 150 watts, and it is just clean to the level of punishment. You can turn it up so loud, and it just does not want to break up. So for a jazz guy who's playing traditionally with a fat, warm sound and doing chord melodies and stuff, um, it's a solid-state power amp and a tube preamp. And for that little niche market, I mean, we don't sell a ton of them, but it's kind of a cool piece. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're looking at bringing back our clean machine, which is a single-channel, high-powered, uh, clean-only amp, which is great for modelers and pedals. Um, and I also have some prototype base products that I'm hoping maybe later this year we can start leaking out to the public as well. Um, there's a few toys, like I built a tube direct box for a friend of mine who said, man, you should put this in production. So lo and behold, that may be happening. Nice. Um, and we might do a tube mic preamp for studio use as well, a rack mount uh, tube unit. My big concern right now is the tube availability situation. You know, that's a little scary at the moment. Thank you, Mr. Putin. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually wanting to talk to you about that because I saw that email circulating yesterday and immediately all, not all of my friends that make amps, but a lot of my friends that make amps, you know, their phones exploded uh, as soon as EHX sent out that email. Uh, well, here's the funny part about it. And I don't want to say that it's a money grab and I don't want to say that, you know, it's attempt, it's an attempt to, to panic stricken the world. But last week I had heard that Electroharmonics had gotten a huge shipment of tubes from Russia. Mm -hmm. And they were thankful that they got out when they did. And they, they take them, I think, by boat. Um, and they took in, you know, a couple of hundred thousand tubes. And I don't know how long it takes for them to sell those. But they apparently brought a lot of tubes into inventory. And then the next week, they put out an announcement that they weren't going to sell them anymore. Hmm. And, and I don't want to think to myself, well, you know, I'm going to sit on these until I can double or triple the price. But listen, Mike Matthews is a sharp businessman. And, you know, I think sooner rather than later, and I hate to say it, I don't like to get political. Somebody's going to probably try and take out Putin. Like you're at a point where his own people don't know why he's doing what he's doing. The Ukraine doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. And there may be things that we're not privy to, you know, behind the scenes whether it's minerals or chemicals or whatever that he's going after, I don't know. Right. But the impact, unfortunately, came at a bad time. Uh, JJ is operating at capacity. They're making tubes as fast as they can. And they're a small company compared to like Reflector in Russia. And the Chinese had a fire in their factory. And what I was told, and I have it on good authority, was the government said, you can rebuild, and they wanted to make the factory bigger anyway. But the factory was located in a residential area, and it was too small for them. So they started to build a bigger factory in another location. They were supposed to be online by summer of this year. Now they're talking about end of the year or the beginning of next year. So it's kind of come at a time where, you know, if we can't get Russian tubes and the Chinese factory is on hiatus, that's a little scary. Yeah. Um, and plus the fact that, you know, it's not like you just add water, like make, <laughs> making tubes is an art form. Yes. And that's one of the reasons we don't do it in the States. Like Hartley Peavy told me he had a friend who bought all the Sylvania machinery to make tubes. He's got them in a warehouse somewhere down in North Carolina somewhere. I'm like, okay, A, what kind of condition is the machinery in? Because it's very technical machinery. And second of all, the wild card here is... Do we know anybody who knows how to run them? Right. <laughs> you know, like the Chinese and the Slovaks and the Russians, they've been doing this long enough. And they've obviously passed that knowledge along. I mean, I want to believe that somebody like Gibson or Fender, who's got money, who's got skin in the game that are going to need tubes, are going to realize, hey, we should take some of this equipment in China and put it in California or Mexico or somewhere. Mm -hmm. So there's another place to make tubes. But listen, Classic Tone, the transformer company, 
went out of business last year. And they blamed it on the pandemic and the margins and material costs and all kinds of fun stuff. I always thought their stuff was underpriced. They could have gotten more money for what they were selling. Mm-hmm. But they were making transformers that go back to the 40s. And Fender used them. They used to be uh, they used to be Schumacher back in the days. And then they changed the name to Classic Tone. And I reached out, because I couldn't do it financially, but I reached out to friends of mine at Gibson, friends of mine at Fender, friends of mine at Mercury, friends of mine at Habor. And I said, somebody needs to buy this company because the intellectual property and the winding equipment and the technology is valuable. Nobody bought them. So they went, Habor went to you know a fire sale, if you will, and they bought some winding equipment and they bought some laminations and some wire and you know bell covers and whatever. I don't know who has the intellectual property, but the company was parted out um, to various people that bought whatever they bought. Mm-hmm. And I worry that you know, running around like Chicken Little and saying the sky is falling, somebody needs to put up the roof. I worry that somebody doesn't recognize that if you've got money, you know, a Gibson, a Fender, whomever, it's not too late for someone to say we really need to get someone else in the arena to make tubes. Yeah. You know, there's some smaller independent Chinese companies that make like high-end audio tubes. But, you know, who's going to spend $100 on a 12AX7 today? You know, I mean, I can remember a time literally where I used to buy tubes. I used to run a factory called uh, New York Audio Labs in the 80s. And we made tube equipment for audio files. I remember buying Tongues Ram 12AX7s for $2 a piece. And we would buy a box of 100 and we would resell them to customers for five or six bucks and think how great that was. Right. And the, la- the last time I bought 12AX7s, you know, they were over $20 wholesale. You know, I repair an amp and charge somebody 30 bucks a tube and they look at me like, wow, that's a lot of money. Hey, go on Reverb, go on Guitar Center's website, go and look what people are charging for tubes and it's only going to get worse unless the supply problem's fixed. Yep. You know, so if the Chinese factory opened up tomorrow, you know, it took them years to get, and this is scary, it took them years to get a good 6550. Mm-hmm. I was putting them in SVTs and they literally weren't coming back. Um, we would put them in, you know, they were out with, with backline companies, you know, Sting would, would specify, you know, four SVTs for tour or, you know, whoever the bass players were. And they were getting hard use three to five years. I wouldn't get back an SVT that used six of them. Wow. And now the last SVT I did a month ago, the tubes alone cost the customer 300 bucks. And guess what? The only 6550 I can get or could get was the Chinese. And when they stopped shipping, I switched over to Tung Soul um, from New Sensor, which were not bad. Little fallout here or there, but generally okay. And now Mike Matthews is not shipping anything to anyone. So I've got a couple of SVTs in the shop and a couple of Marshalls with 6550s. I don't know when I'm going to be able to finish them and get them out the door. You know, and I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist and I'm not paranoid. I'm trying to be calm and logical about this, but I'm concerned over the next six months to a year that, you know, and I've spoken to other manufacturers and other technicians that do repair work. Everybody's concerned. Yeah. You know, and that's a little scary. Yeah. You know, getting tubes and getting quality tubes at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's such a crazy thing that... I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast a few times, and maybe you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me somewhere around 2015 or so, there were rumblings on the internet about somebody trying to reopen uh, the RCA uh, tube manufacturing, I think, in Arizona. And I remember, I have this weird memory of them finally achieving that and going to look at the tubes, and it was like, for a set of... Uh, for a couple 12AX7s, I don't remember, it was like four or $600 or something. And then well, I never look, heard anything about it again. Well, uh, making, so I don't know make, what happened there. <laughs> make, making it in the States, you know, everybody, you know, here's an interesting quandary. Everybody says, well, it's all about the environment and it's very toxic and all of this and all of that. Well, yes, I do kind of agree there are processes that are toxic. 
Um, but I've read up on it, and they're no more toxic than making chips or making transistors is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think, you know, some of this panic over, you know, we can't do it here. And I've heard those rumblings. There were rumblings that Groove Tubes at one point was going to start making tubes in America. And supposedly they made a short run. And then it turned out that it was like Chinese guts that got put in the glass in the States and they had problems with failures and then they abandoned the project. Um, You know, again, the sad part really is back in the 60s, you could look at a GE price list for tubes and I'll never forget it. It used to come it was a little bigger than maybe your driver's license. It was all folded up in paper and you could unravel this thing. And it it was like an Atlas and it was like 400 different tubes on both sides of the sheet for televisions and radios and FM receivers and guitar amps. And, And today you only really need to make a dozen tubes. Right. I mean, what do you need? You need 6550 EL34, 6V6, EL84, 6L6, 12AX, 12AT, maybe 6FQ7s, maybe a pentode input tube for the Vox guys and whatever. Beyond that, you're not making horizontal output tubes for tube televisions. Right. You know, you really could be a specialty maker. I mean, a rumor was that the reflector factory, you know, not only made the reflector tubes for audio, but they were still also building radar tubes and things that the Soviets are still using. And this is comforting. Tubes will survive a radiation blast. So that's why they continue to use them. <laughs> oh, oh, good. Oh, that's they, great. Exactly. Oh, whoopee. <laughs> but seriously, you, if you only had a focus on a dozen items you know, you could potentially make them with quality and make them economically. Um, you know, the, the sad part is it's sort of a black art. Uh, one of my mentors, guy by the name of Ted Hammond, very busy engineer on the East Coast, worked in the recording studios. He actually worked for Blood, Sweat and Tears uh, drummer Bobby Columbia. He built his home studio and maintained it. And um, Ted's listed on a lot of records and stuff. We've had a lot of conversations, but he studied tubes in the 1950s at Rensselaer. And Ted knew like the chemistry of like when a tube was bad, he would be like, well, you know, they needed more strontium on the cathode or whatever it was. Um, But he knew the intimacy. You know, it's almost like cooking. You know, you can buy a recipe or, or get a recipe on the Internet and buy all the ingredients you don't know if your veal parmesan is going to be as good as if, you know, Molto Mario made it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of tubes, I'm sure there's specifications, you know, in books somewhere of how thick the metal is and how it's plated and, you know, the vacuum and all that other stuff. The question is whether or not anybody today, outside of the small cliques in China, Russia, or Slovenia, wherever, that know the the ins and outs of really what goes on inside the tube, you know, and that's a little scary, you know, and it it is literally a black art. You have to kind of know what you're doing where I did X and it didn't work. I'm going to try Y now, you know? So it's, it's going to be interesting. I I still would love to see, you know, in North America, somebody said, Oh, somebody like uh, Bill Gates or Elon Musk, that's a billionaire, you know, for the sake of music, you know, should start a tube factory. And I'm like, yeah, he's got nothing better to do than that. Right. (laughs) So it'll be, it's going to be interesting the next year or two to see how things shake out. I mean, if the Chinese are smart, they'll come back, you know, bigger and better than ever and flip the bird off to Mike Matthews and say, hey, you know, keep it. You know, I tried to actually resuscitate, uh, you know, uh, there was another tube factory in Russia um, that was cranking out tubes and they had American distribution under the Svetlana brand name and their American descri- distributor screwed them over, unfortunately. And they basically closed the factory. They locked the doors and went home was the way it was explained to me. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend in Russia who's a technician and he said, I visited the factory and he said, it's on a campus where they make light bulbs and they make tubes for other purposes you know, the the radio, radio uh, radar and all that kind of stuff. He said, but the audio building is basically just shuttered. Um, and 
I talked to a couple of people in Europe, you know, investors and business people, and it was a catch-22. It was like, well, how many tubes can you sell if we make tubes? Well, it depends on how good the tubes are that you make. Right. So if you make a premium tube, you could potentially rule the world in five or 10 years. And, you know, I would call Macintosh or Fender or somebody and say, how many tubes do you use? Because I'm trying to do a sales forecast. And sometimes they didn't want to tell you because that would tell you basically how many amps they make. Right. You know, Macintosh or whoever didn't want to kind of show me their hand. Um, so it was the catch 22 of how many tubes can you sell? Well, how well can you make them? And it was just this impasse. And when you say to somebody who's got a couple of million dollars of fund money, well, I don't yet know, but we should start this up and see what happens. <laughs> Apparently there's employees that, you know, literally are home waiting for the phone call to go back to work. And it just never came, you know, which is a little scary. Right. Cause yep. at the time they were building good tubes. Well, a lot of built a very good tube. Um, their 6550 was fantastic. And when the factory closed, here's a dumb move. They took all of the rejects and defective tubes that they hadn't sold or that came back and somebody dumped them on eBay and they were no good. And everybody said, well, we're not buying Svetlana anymore. They all suck. Well, no, they don't suck. You were, you were sold garbage. Right. You know, so that screwed the brand name up. Yeah, that's like saying I bought, you know, Borden's milk. It was horrible. Well, you bought milk that expired. Right. You know, so, you know, that was a missed opportunity, man. Three or four years ago, I had a, a couple of people involved that were like, it would be nice to start that facility up because all the machinery is there ready to go, you know. And the people on standby, that's actually almost even in some ways more important. The people assuming who know how to run it, you know, assuming they haven't died or gotten jobs elsewhere. I mean, by now, they're probably doing something else. But uh, yeah, it's it's a weird thing because I think we. We think of tubes as being this hyper niche thing that's specifically hi-fi guys and guitar players mostly, totally. and, which is true, but there are millions of us <laughs> and we, well, we could use them, you know? And that's why I feel, you know, somewhat compelled to think that someone like a Gibson or a Fender, I mean, at one time, I'm good friends with Richie Fliegler, who used to run Fender at one point. Um, he was responsible for the hot rod amps, mm -hmm. which were ex unbelievably successful. We serviced them on a regular basis, not because they're bad amps. It's because they sold so damn many of them. But he said to me, at our peak, and here's a number to think about, Fender was selling 10,000 amps a month. Wow. I don't think I've sold 10,000 amps in 20 years of being in business. <laughs> you know, And you got to think, now that Gibson owns Mesa or a portion of Mesa, I never got the full story, whether it's a partial or a full buyout. These are people that have Wall Street, you know, money behind them and Fender's friggin' huge. Somebody has to have a light bulb over their head and say, and we got to protect our assets because we've got a business here. We can't ship tubes if we don't, we can ship amps if we don't have tubes. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a lot of other smaller independent companies that are waiting in the wings to see what the big guys are going to do. What's Marshall going to do? They're certainly not going to go back to bringing out solid state Marshalls. So we all know how good those were. <laughs> yeah, you know, seriously. And, you know, we're all not, we're all not going to run out and buy quilters tomorrow or rolling whatever the latest rolling digital attempted amplification is. You know, we want to. We want the real deal. Yeah. Cesar, did you hear that? Gibson, come on, go get it, go get them, go figure out how to do the tubes. I don't know if he's listening or not. Exactly. I mean, we had some interesting <laughs> conversations at NAM, you know, more than a few times about, you know, what Gibson wanted to do in amplification. And, you know, I kind of, you know, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. I kind of had a, a couple of conversations thinking that possibly I would do something or our company would do something um, with Gibson, whether it was a consulting role or actually building things. Um, and then the conversation just sort of died off. And then the next thing a buddy of mine calls, he goes, did you hear Gibson bought Mesa? I'm like, oh, well, I guess that's why they don't call anymore, you know. <laughs> and, and Caesar was a nice enough guy. I mean, we had some nice conversations. He was a cool guy. But, you know, business is business. Totally. You know, I've had conversations with PRS and a few other people. That they went in their own direction, and that's fine. I'm happy being independent at this point. Yeah. Same. I mean, it's it's weird when you do start traveling down those roads and having those conversations. Is um, 
I'm a I'm a partner in Stringjoy, and that's happened a few times for us recently. And it's weird to be at that point. Being well, yeah, new to listen, the, it's it's you tempting. Know? You know, I may look, I may look 39, but I'm actually 64. And you know, I've talking to talked to a few people in the business where I'm like, look, I love what I'm doing. I had a conversation with my doctor. Like, I'm in for a routine physical, and it's like, how's life going? Well, you know, blah blah blah. And he and he says, I love being a doctor. I hate running a practice. I said, that's great. I love being an engineer. I hate running a business. So we laughed about it. But you know, truth be told, my kids, I'm proud of my kids. My daughter's a, a professor and she teaches dental hygiene and she works as a dental hygienist. My son's a computer geek in Manhattan. Um, they don't have any interest in the business. They've worked here when they were going to school. You know, my son and daughter both worked here soldering and wiring and packing boxes and sweeping floors. And it was a great experience. Um, but it would be nice to look at having a successor that said, you know, we'll put you on the five or 10 year plan that you can do your designing and your, your customer support and QC and the things you love to do and let us worry about cash flow and advertising and social media and, you know, having a purchasing agent instead of me having to be the guy who's looking to buy transformers or cabinets or tubes, Mm -hmm. you know, so you know, at some point it, it does start to become appealing. You know, I, I went through a divorce two years ago. I'm in a, a, a relationship now I'm very happy with. Uh, my girlfriend sings. We're in the same band together. We live together. Life is, is good. But you start to hit a point where you're like, yeah, you know, I wouldn't mind going away for a couple of weeks. But, you know, I got a business that doesn't run itself. You know, if I'm not here, I'll come back and my desk will just be covered and, you know, call this guy. My email will be loaded up with people I have to get back to. Right now, I'm still the, the fulcrum around which the merry-go-round spins. Right. And, you know, that's that's cool and I'm proud and honored, but also kind of squeezed in the middle where it's like, you know, I wouldn't wish I had a little bit more breathing room. No, I, I understand. I definitely do. I, know, as, it is, as it is, I'm working like 10 or 10.30 in the morning till 7 or 7.30 at night, most days of the week, unless I'm gigging. You know, and I take a break from that. You know, I'll, I'll leave a little earlier. Um, you know, my my girlfriend's out tomorrow. I'm going out with my girlfriend's for a brunch. Okay, I'll go to the shop because I have no life. I have nothing else to do, you know. <laughs> so I'll be here, you know, stuffed in a prototype board or answering tech support emails or sweeping up or, you know, because that's just what I do. Yeah. Or doing some podcast with some random guy from the internet, you know, something like that. Some, some geek guy. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> going to... A few steps back in the conversation, I, I do want to want to go actually several steps back just because you were talking about something that I'm very passionate about, which is, you know, you were in this gig or this job for 10, 12 years that was a good job that paid well and did all the things that you needed it to do. And you realize like this is not this is not it, though. Like, this is not what I want to do. You know, I have a very, very similar story. I was, I was, you know, working, you know, since I was 16, full time doing working on cars and other things. And all I wanted to do was something in the guitar industry. And so I had to figure out how to wedge my way into it. But I like what you said, because a lot of people view it as they just got to jump in, they just have to jump into a business and, and do whatever. But like, I like that you're like you described. Oh, I did both for a long time, and then got it to where it was, you know, looking like it was going to work before just cutting bait and running, because I think that's why you hear the classic tale of, oh, small businesses last less than you know whatever a year or two years, whatever the number is. I think it's because a lot of people jump in with both feet, you know, having never done it before, and it's hard. So like having that job. And kind of doing both at the same time, I think, is key for a lot of people. And a lot of people miss that. So I was really glad to hear you talk about that. Well, I had an interesting conversation last week with someone in the music industry who's been involved with small businesses like mine. And, you know, it was comforting to know that I'm not the only guy, you know, who was either smart enough or dumb enough, depending on your viewpoint, to do what I did. Um, And I've said it for the 20 plus years I've been doing this. I think I'm a gifted engineer. I think I build a good sounding, reliable product and people complimentary on the business I built. But I, I look at it and I'm like, I am not a businessman because I would have done things a lot differently in hindsight 
mm-hmm. um, than I did them. You know, there were mistakes I fully owned, um, and I would have been more aware of of those things had I been a business person. I I might have done things quite differently than I did, and I don't know if the outcome would have been where I am now. I don't really know. Yeah, you know, it's 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 very fulfilling to be creative, and it's great that I've met you know. Uh, you know, to meet a Santana or, you know, some of my customers, Jimmy Herring, guys I love to death. Um, Al Miola, I've been to his house and worked in the studio with him. It's a good feeling. But, you know, it also doesn't pay the rent. Um, <laughs> it, it does move your company's credibility and reputation up as, you know, and I'm humbled by it. You know, when a guy emails me and said, I went to a Demiola concert last night and he blew me away with his tone, I would never think he would play an amp like yours. because you know, we were so closely identified with, you know, that Dumble sound, if you will. And, you know, Al told somebody, I, I saw it at B.B. At, uh, King's in the city. He said, I'll, I'll play whatever amp or guitar lets me express myself and get the sound that I hear in my head. And, you know, meeting Andy and, and trying out his amps, I realized his amps would do that. Um, you know, and I, I laugh because someone as diverse as Carlos Santana or Dave Stryker, who's a complete clean jazz guy, are using my stuff. <clears throat> so it's kind of nice to know, you know, our gear can meet the needs of various genres. We're in the jam band community. And, you know, I met Derek Trucks and he's like, your amp's one of my favorite amps. I said, I didn't even know you owned one. <laughs> he said, I got one in the studio. He goes, I was in the store. I played it and I bought it. Didn't call looking for a deal. You know, a lot of a lot of artists will call up and say, hey, you know, do you have an artist program? Sure. We'll work with you, you know, especially because we get promotion. They'll do an Internet video or we'll run a sales promotion like we just did a, a thing with MFS. Where the guitar player in Zach Brown's band had a Gibson on tour at the end of the tour. That was the winner. Uh, the winning contest guy got that guitar. And we did the same thing with an amp. He got a, an ODS 50 and he got an ES 335 and the customer's happy and he won the contest. But nice. what's cool, what's cool is, you know, the diverse cross section of people using my stuff. It's it's humbling. You know, we had a, a a night a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago. I think Zach Brown was on a July 4th celebration at the Statue of Liberty. So here's, you know, Zach Brown's playing my cabinets in the back. I think Richie Samboro was using it. Zach had an amp and his guys had my amps in the background. It's the Statue of Liberty and my phone literally like blows up dude you got to put on the tv your your brand is like all over the place i'm like that's really cool yeah that 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 meant a lot that that was like wow and it's not mesa boogie and it's not friedman it's me that's kind (laughs) of cool and that that's a good feeling those are the moments those are the moments why you know even though we could probably be doing better financially in other industries. Those are the moments to keep you in. You know, it's like, oh, oh totally. I mean, the, the absolute opposite moment was, you know, I get announced on a gig. The guy that I play guitar for, Tommy Walker, is a great guy, and he introduces the band in the course of the evening. And he says, "On the guitar, one of my best buddies and a great guitar player, Andy Fuchs." And you know, you know, thank you. Okay, great. And I go on a break and this little old lady comes over to me and she says, it's really nice. You put your name on your amp. That's kind of cool. <laughs> and like, you have no idea. Like, you know, and, and my girlfriend goes, do you know who he is? I'm like, it's okay, honey. And we laugh about it because like people look at it from the other side of things. One guy said to me, you don't have to put your name on your amp. He announced who you are already anyway. I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. I'll not do that next time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, this has been a awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed it. It's great. Yeah. And I uh, got some more stuff I want to talk to you about on the Patreon, but I do have a couple of classic questions to wrap this thing up. Uh, Go for it. Before I do that, I want to give you the floor to shout out anybody you want to shout out. You know, thank your, you know, your Aunt Tilly. You can say ah. whatever you want to say. Right now is the chance to do it. And you you go for it. Well, you know, I, I thank my ex-wife, who was my business partner for 20 plus years. She was very supportive. And although we're not together anymore, I can't uh, shortchange her contribution to helping the business get to where it is. Um, my two wonderful kids who were instrumental in helping 
you know, at times when, you know, we couldn't hire people to get things done or they wanted to be a part of what we do. You know, my partner now, Wendy, who's a, a, a wonderful, I never thought somebody as old and crabby as me would find somebody as young and wonderful as her. So that's kind of cool. You know, uh, the guys in the shop, you know, Scotty and, uh, and Sean and uh, Ken, my operations manager, um, Neil, my sales director, you know, all my dealers and all my endorsers that have helped us get to where we are. And, you know, hopefully we get through this crazy, uh, we'll call it the tube pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, after, after overcoming a pandemic, literally where the company was closed for three months and my accountant said, you should go on unemployment, you know, it was a scary time. And we were, we're just in the midst of coming out from the dark ages, you know, shipping 10, 20 amps every couple of days to literally fill orders. Some of them, they're as old as a year old because mm -hmm. we couldn't get transformers or we couldn't get, you know, whatever it was. My cabinet guys sent me an email and said, we're getting charged now fuel surcharges and birch plywood. Oddly enough, Russian birch plywood just went up 30%, you know, and it's like you do a price increase. And by the time it gets to your dealers, you're thinking about doing it again. Right. So it's a crazy time, but I, I thank everybody for hanging in there and, and all our repair and, and um, manufactured product customers. Thank you for supporting us and hanging with us. All right. That was good. I like that. Thank you. All right. These are the final questions of the podcast. This first one, I'm very curious to hear what you say. What is your favorite boss pedal? My famous what? boss pedal? Yeah. Wow. I, I use a Roland. What is it? A DD3? I use a delay. That's kind of cool. All right. The DD3. One. I use one of my delays and it was too big. And I was never a pedal board guy until I got back into gigging. I had stopped gigging for you know, five or 10 years when I started getting the business going, I just, there were just too many things going on. And I used one of my delays, which were physically pretty big. And then I put a pedal board together. And I'm like, oh man, I don't want to make it any bigger, but I don't have room for, you know, whatever I need. So I, I started using that, you know, I, I had, I had the blues driver for a while. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, wow. That was, that came out of left field. I never thought about that. One. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the classic questions. So the DD3, sure. that's a popular one. All right, this is, now this one you really probably haven't seen coming. So, but it is pretty controversial, and in your neck of the woods, I think it's even maybe even more controversial. What is your favorite kind of pizza? Favorite kind of pizza? Wow! I usually order garbage can. Garbage can pretty much has everything on it you can put on a pizza. <laughs> okay. You go into the right, you know, uh, pizzeria, and you say, "Give me a garbage can," and maybe hold the anchovies. You know, you're going to get peppers and onions and pepperoni and meatball. And, you know, I'm trying to watch my health a little more than I had over the years. So I drink a little less and I eat a little more cautiously. But, you know, if I'm going out on the curve, garbage can, man, and thin crust, too. Thin crust. You can, yeah. you I can keep that. that Chicago tomato soup in a bread basket, whatever the hell they call it. That's not pizza. Stop it. <laughs> it's a casserole, right? That's what Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like it. Do you have a favorite pizzeria in your neck of the woods you'd like to shout out? Well, you know, there's an iconic place called the Star Tavern near us that makes a very good thin crust pizza, but they're not the nicest people. and They've got like an attitude. Mm. So I found another pizzeria called Lombardi's, Ooh, yeah, um, yeah. which is 10 minutes from where we live and work. Um, and they make you feel, you know, it's like cheers. You know, you walk in, it's like, hey, how you been? Good to see you. The pizza's every bit as good, and they make you feel like they want your business. And, and you know, as a service business in our shop, you know, somebody comes in, you know, or, you know, where did you hear about us? And if your experience was a good one, please tell your friends, because most of my repair business is referrals. Mm -hmm. And if you have a problem, and listen, we're not perfect. You know, a tube will shit the bed or an amp will have an intermittent problem. Hey, I'm sorry you had to come back, but we'll figure this out. And you know what? Customers don't get angry because they know, look, it's not a heart-lung machine. It's not your dialysis machine. It's a goddamn guitar amp, but we'll figure <laughs> it out. And if you say, oh, you again, you know, you're going to have a problem. But the guys that leave here typically will be like, I'm going to be back, and it'll be to bring you three more amps. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's all about customer service, and that's why I ended up like Lombardi's is my go-to. I like it. I love it. There you go. Love it. Thank you so much for hanging out. This has been awesome. 
And uh, I can't wait to get into a little more here over on the Patreon section. So thank you. Absolutely. And I want to check out some of your strings. Send me some 11s, some 11 electrics. I want to see what they're all about. I'm hearing good things. We'll do it. We'll, we'll, uh, I'll grab your address and we'll, uh, we'll get you some. Maybe totally. a little grab bag. <clears throat> Sounds great. All right, everybody. For Andy, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tone. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I did. It was really great getting to know Andy. And like I said in the intro, this patron exclusive is so good. So whether you're doing that through Apple or Patreon, you are in for such a treat of an episode. And again, thank you to everybody who is doing that. And if you can't do that right now, I totally understand. But if you could please share this with a friend, share this with somebody, tell somebody about it, tell everyone you can about it. That is what keeps this show going, because unlike YouTube, we don't even have an algorithm that could possibly take the show and drop it in people's laps. So I need you. Please share this with whoever you can. I really appreciate it. And one more thing, speaking of YouTube, I just made a new YouTube video for the Falcon Drive. The Falcon Drive is an exclusive overdrive pedal made by Rude Tech for None other than Mr. Eaglebones Falcon Hawk himself, Mr. Ian Fowles of the Aquabats, who has been on this podcast before. So check out his episode if you've never heard it. Go check out that demo. I did something pretty dumb for the intro. So let me know if you like it. It's over on the Tone Mob YouTube channel. Please go subscribe there. I'm working on uh, trying to build things up over there. So thank you so much. And, you know, I'll talk to you very, very soon. Bye-bye. One last thing before we totally sign off here, I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstreet as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out.